Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. I'm Josh. I'm a pastor here. You most likely see me doing sound, wrapping cables, all that kind of stuff. Um, first things first, we love conversation here. So I'm gonna start out with a question and that question is gonna be something real light and fun. And it's going to be, what do you think when you hear the word repentance? I'm really curious what came up in that conversation for you, as that word is a super heavy, loaded, triggery word. Uh, but where I want to begin is not repentance today. Where I want to begin is a story. Um, and it's a story of me, and it involves this uh, broken gas pump here. So I brought props today, so this is going to be fun. There's, um, let me read you. Yeah, Corey always does his fun. And to do that, we've got to talk about some things. Mine kind of looks like I'm going to kill someone after this, uh, or hold them for ransom. But we are going to talk about... Um, I've got gas pump, gas pump haggle written down. Uh, I've got a conversation with Rabbi Mark. I, I had to go to rehab. That's written on there, just like that. <laughs> um, I've got a journal entry to share for you, and uh, we've got some full moments to get to. Uh, to get to all of that, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to get into a story together. So let's just pray together. God, I am so grateful for this church. And the healing that happens here on, the, on a weekly basis, God. And I'm struck with the fact that after being here for over a year, I've just seen that the, the most healing agent of this place is the ability for us to come together and just be together. To just be able to be in proximity together, to feel welcome, to feel loved, to feel understood. And I just thank you that a place like this exists. Amen. So about four-ish months ago, I was headed up north. I'm originally from San Francisco. Uh, actually, my dad, well, there we go, a couple in there. Uh, my dad was a missionary when I was growing up. So we moved like all over um, and we landed in like these cities where quote unquote, the Southern Baptist tradition said, no church will thrive here. And that was my dad's sort of mission. Like I'll go to these places that churches won't thrive. So we went to like fun cities. <laughs> it wasn't like going to like, you know, like far off countries and stuff. We went to like fun cities. And so I did like Dallas, uh, we went somewhere in South Carolina. We'll, we'll skip that one. And then we went to uh, uh, the Bay Area first, and then we were in Amsterdam, and then we were in New York City, and then we were in a couple places in New Jersey, and then we finally landed at San Francisco. Um, and so four months ago, I was headed up there to not only kind of visit home, but I was also going to begin this training for uh, spiritual direction. Has anybody ever done spiritual direction or ever worked with a spiritual director? Awesome. Oh, it's so cool to see. Um, this is something that is so needed in our world. Spiritual direction, when I found this thing, it clicked for everything. And I already told you I went to rehab. Spiritual direction was one of the things that brought me back to goodness, that brought me back to center. Because that's what all of this is. It's a bringing back to center. So I decided I really want to get to know what the spiritual direction thing is all about. I've done some spiritual direction in my life, but my passion really would be like if I could do this with other guys and girls in recovery, that would like light me up completely. So I need to get some training in it. I'd started another training, fell off of that, like I fell off the wagon. There's a lot to that, but I didn't get through it. And so I decided I'm going to give this a try. And the only one I could find was in San Francisco. So I decided to drive up there. And on that drive, everything in my life seemed to be coming together. 
See, I've been on like a four-year journey, uh, and in that four-year journey, you even heard my voice kind of flip there because it's painful. But on a four-year journey of trying to get back to goodness, trying to get back to God's goodness. And so this drive for me was incredible because I realized not only am I going to start this like spiritual direction training, but this, uh, this recovery house came to me and asked me to start a group there. And then other than that, I got to start this like nonprofit that helps get people scholarships to go into sober livings and to treatments. All this stuff is coming together. And one of the big reasons that I got so low and so dark was that my wife and I lost a baby. And on this drive, at this particular moment, I just found out 48 hours prior that Chelsea, my wife, was pregnant all over again. And we were gonna take this drive and I was gonna experience this joy and this goodness and everything was gonna be awesome, awesome. So I pull into this gas station and I'm, I'm blasting uh, good music and I'm, I'm, I'm vibing out and I get into the gas station and I put it in there and I just, I'm just feeling this connection with God. I'm feeling so high, I'm feeling so mighty and I plug that little uh, gas thing in, go back to my car, put music back on. I'm just really vibing like, ah, oh, I can't wait to get to this thing, can't wait to like get closer to God, get closer to myself. Gas is done. I decide I'm just going to drive away. I drive away, and, uh, and I make it about like four or five blocks before this very mean lady in a Toyota Corolla starts screaming at me because I thought I'd done something wrong. So I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I roll down the window because I'm an addict. I want to embrace pain. So I, I open that window, and I see like, what, what's going on? And she looks at me, and she stares at me, and she's staring not at me, but she's staring at the back of the car, and she just sees that there's a gas pump attached to a hose that's dragging behind and I have drugged this gas thing, all just vibing out to Jesus, just like, yeah, just like driving down the street with a gas pump, like dragging behind me. And all I could do was laugh. Because in the last four years, all I have learned is that when we are in these points of wilderness, these points of difficulty, we get something out of it. Wilderness is not an optional journey. Difficult things are not an optional journey. And I think that's really what was handed to me as a faith. Like, it was like, hey, this is all about pain avoidance. If you can say the right things, you can learn the right verses, you can do the right things, you will never have to go through the things that these people in the Bible went through. <laughs> they, didn't, they had to go to the wilderness because they wouldn't fight the giants in the promised land, right? They did wrong things, therefore they were in the wilderness. But what I want to kind of, like, argue this morning is that that wilderness journey is absolutely essential for that group of people. And it's absolutely essential for us. Really, when we're reading this, we're not just reading sort of like, like the biography of Israel or the biography of these people. You could really take it in a more poetic and beautiful sense, and you could read this story, and you could say, actually, this story looks like a biography of the soul. Not just my soul, but every soul. And the fact that there are these moments of bondage and then these moments of freedom and then these moments of wilderness and that there's this cycle that just seems to continue and to continue and to continue and that actually the worst thing we can do for our souls is to tell them that you need to avoid pain at all costs. That our souls need what Buddhists call necessary suffering. So it's not unnecessary suffering. If any of you study Buddhism at all, this is that two arrow thing. So that means that if you get shot by one arrow, because this is what you do in Los Angeles, right? You get shot by one arrow... That pain is real. That pain hurts. <laughs> it's an arrow. It's in my side. Let's talk about that, right? But when I talk about it for too long and I focus on it and it becomes my whole life, I'm now sticking a second arrow in where that first arrow is. So the first arrow is not my fault. The second arrow is totally my fault because there's necessary suffering and there's unnecessary suffering. 
and that unnecessary suffering is what we're caught up in a lot of our lives. I want to read you this Richard Rohr quote, and I've only got it on the TV here, so I'm going to see if I can read it to you like this sideways. Can we get that quote up there? Great. Um, This is Jesus' great reversal theme. He turns religion on its head. We thought we came to God by doing it right, and lo and behold, surprise of surprises, we come to God by doing it wrong and growing because of it. The only things strong enough to break open our heart are things like pain, mistakes, unjust suffering, tragedy, failure, and the general absurdity of life. I wish it were not so, but it clearly is. And this next part is my favorite. He says, fortunately, life will lead us to the edge of our own resources through such events. We must be led to an experience or situation that we cannot fix or control or understand. Let me read that one one more time because we really don't like that one. (laughs) We need, we must be led to an experience or situation that we cannot fix or control. That's the soul's journey. It needs that. It needs that to grow. Up to that moment, it's all just been religion. And only on the other side do you know that everything has been preparation. I think I skipped a line there. It says that's where faith begins. That's where faith begins. And before that, it's all just been religion. And I can tell you that so, so truly from my own faith walk. Being the son of a pastor, I'm so grateful for uh, that young man who was up here who said I'm the son of a pastor and has been abused. And the same thing. But I'm the son of a pastor, right? And, and I grew up with this inheritance, this faith, and this tradition. And then I went to seminary, and I got even more of that stuff in my head. And what I realized when I got sober is that I really had what I call a trust fund faith. <laughs> and that means that I had a bank account back here filled with all this facts and all this knowledge and all this stuff and all these Hebrew words and all this Greek and whatever you want. But I had not connected it from here to here. Because there had not been an event yet that I could not overcome by my own thinking or my own doing. I had to come to something bigger than myself to understand what faith really was. And at that point, it became faith, and it wasn't religion. It wasn't tradition. It wasn't rules, right? You guys ever notice as as Christians, at least as Protestant evangelical (laughs) Christians, when something really, really bad and terrible happens, do you ever notice that we don't really have a great answer for that? (laughs) That's really not our, tra- our tradition's thing is joy, right? We love joy. And we can sing, we can do all that kind of stuff. And we can lament in singing too. But in all honesty, right, we don't, really, we don't really want to rub up against anything that's difficult or anything that we can't understand. In fact, when really bad things happen, we're really good at casseroles. <laughs> we're really good at meal trains. We're really good at things like that. But we're really not good at having those conversations. And I found out that firsthand My wife and I had started a church in Santa Monica, and it was growing, and it was moving, and it was doing things in the world, and we were about five years in, and my alcoholism was just creeping up with it, and like just a little equal pace, little equal pace, and then all of a sudden, it's like someone threw this giant light switch, and all of a sudden, wherever I was, and whatever I was controlling, and however I was controlling, it was no longer on the table. I was lost. I woke up not knowing what to do, where to go, or how to fix it. Basically, what happened with that is I had a very hard conversation with my church board that said, listen, this is where it's at, and this is what I'm doing. And they were so gracious, and they gave me 90 days. And they said, look, let's get 90 days. Let's get you going. Let's get you to a treatment center. Let's get you back, and then you can come back. Because this church was a lot like New Abbey, right? It was like, we, we don't throw people away. We don't. And so they gave me these 90 days, and I was like, 90 days? I can fix anything in 90 days. <laughs> let's do this. I couldn't get 10 days together by the next time that I came up to preach. 
And by that next time that I came up to preach, I was so lost and I was so lost in my own head that I was speaking, at a, speaking on exactly what I'm going to be speaking on today. But I couldn't find the words. I couldn't find the way. And I could just watch people filing out of the back of the church. Ouch. Right? I promise there's going to be some light in this. It's not all going to be this heavy. <laughs> but that was the moment that I realized, like, oh, my God, I can't turn this around on my own. I need something else to come in and turn this all around. I can't rely on my trust fund faith. I have to rely on God every single day without the ability to pull from all of that knowledge and all of that inheritance. I've got to walk with God day by day by day. And we look at the wilderness narrative, and this is all over the place. Here's our scripture today. This is a really famous story. It's about like the manna, and if you've been in church around like a little bit, you'll know that story. It's like this, these are these these cakes or this bread that would show up in the morning and the Israelites and they would go and they would collect it and they had just what they needed for the day. This is how that scripture goes. It says, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Now, an omer technically means like one-fifth of a shift of grain. I know you're going to use that a lot in your life. So do I. But an omer really means what's good for today. What's good for today. I don't know about you, but a lot of my stress in life comes from when I believe and start planning for more than just today. When I place my head way down the line, when I get this job, this promotion, this thing, when I have this much money in my bank account, all that stuff comes true, then I can be happy. I'm not trusting that omer. (laughs) I'm picking up more than I can carry, and what happens with that is I end up carrying a burden, like a really big burden, and you let that go long and long and long enough, and all of a sudden you've got things like addiction popping up, right? So an omer, it's just enough for today. Uh, for one person that you have in your tent. And then the next, the next uh, verse goes like this. It says, the Israelites did just as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. And that sounds honky-dory, everything's great. <laughs> Seems like these Israelites are doing really well out of bondage and into freedom, Right? And then the very next verse, the very next verse says this. Moses said to them, don't keep any of it until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses, and some of them kept it until morning. And it became infested with worms and stank, and Moses got angry with them, right? It's this back, and it's this back and forth. It's this two steps forward, one step back. But the truth is, this is a group of people that was in bondage and slavery for generations of time. And the truth is, when we come out of something like that, it's going to take a little bit of time to get our heads straight. For me, in my own journey, this is a lot like early recovery. Poor Corey knows this so well. He's had so many phone calls with me where I'm like, I'm doing great. <laughs> Week later, I'm, I'm still doing great. Everyone's gone, but I'm doing great, right? <laughs> these are these moments where we don't fully commit to trusting to God day by day, day after day. This Omer thing comes up again in another Jesus story when he's feeding like the the 10,000 or the 4,000, all that stuff where we have like the loaves of bread and the fish. They come and he comes to the disciples and he says, we're going to feed all these people. And they go, we can't feed all these people. And he goes, well, how much food do you have? And they go, oh, I have this one loaf of bread. I have these fish, blah, blah, blah. And we just take that like that's what they're carrying around. The very verse before that 
God told them to go out. Jesus told them, go out into all the land, and here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to take, I don't want you to take a staff. I don't want you to take a friend. I don't want you to take anything. I want you to go to these places and be a guest. No food, no extra belt, no clothes. <laughs> you're going to be a guest, and you're going to be completely reliant upon the other person. That's what sharing this kingdom looks like. And then when they come back from that, they're at this event, and Jesus asks them, how much food do you have? And they go, oh, I've got one baguette and one fish. Oh, I thought I told you not to take any food for that journey. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Right? The omer is enough. It's always enough. And we get focused on too much, too much, too much. And I don't know about you, but when I heard the story growing up in the church, or if you're familiar with this story, again, a lot of the time we're just saying, like, hey, if you do the right thing, though, you'll never have to be in this position. Right? You just live your life the right way. There's no way you'll ever find yourself in the wilderness, and you won't need to do the whole manna thing, and you won't need to rely on God day by day, day in, day out. But the truth is, we're all going to get there. And I can relate to this feeling of in and out and back and forth, because in my own story with addiction, it was that for years at a time. It was, I'll put my whole body in, and then I'll take my old body. It's like the, the just this is just occurring to me now. It's like the hokey pokey. <laughs> I put my whole body in. I take my whole body out. I turn it all. Actually, it's perfect. I turn it all around, and that's what it's all about. That's theology. Thank you, guys. Wow. Charles, can you come up and play now? That'd be great. Um, <laughs> but that's true, right? You go in and you go out. You go in and you go out. And in rehab, I had to do this over and over and over again. Rehab is a space of people who have relieved themselves from the bondage of slavery, from the bondage of addiction, only enough to complain about the food in the cafeteria. Right? Right? When I went to rehab, I thought that was something I was going to avoid all the way. Right? I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I've got this on lock. And in fact, when you come to the 12 steps, if you go that route in your, uh, in your sort of sobriety and everything, which is totally up to you, if you do that, the first three steps are all about your connection with your higher power or your God. And I had this unfortunate situation where a lot of people would go, oh, well, you're a pastor. You don't need those first three steps. Those first three steps are fine. You got those under control. Let's get you right to step four. Step four happens to be when you write out every bad thing you've ever done in your entire life, and then you get prepared to read it to a person. I think you need those other three steps with God before you get there. <laughs> And so I'd be in and out and in and out. And when I finally decided, okay, I'll just go to rehab, I went to this place called Betty Ford. Has anybody ever heard of Betty Ford? It used to be like the celebrity rehab center, right? Lindsay Lohan went there. <laughs> All these people, right? And when you go, there's like pictures of them on the wall. The thing is, it changed. <laughs> it's like a diner, and they're like, look who's here. Um, the thing is, it changed when I went there from being like this big, beautiful, bougie place to like a place that now accepts insurance. <laughs> and so this radical shift had happened where there's this big, beautiful campus, but even the staff are like angry there. Like no one wanted to be there, not even, <laughs> not even the people that were trying to get us sober. And so when I finally got there, I was like, rah, and my mind is all crazy. Because again, right, when you come out of addiction, your brain is all sorts of different things, and it's definitely not sane. There's a thing called the hedonic set point. I'm going to get real nerdy with you for a second. Hedonic set point is like the hedonic treadmill, if you've ever heard of that, which means like this is the reason why you get a new toy and a week later that toy is just a toy, right? Or the first bite is amazing and then by the last bite you're like, oh, okay, it's just the same thing, right? Your brain sets a point where pleasure can be found and when you fill that with drugs and alcohol, your brain sets the point like way up here. So basically anything that you do that's not drugs and alcohol, the pleasure center will never get there. So when you see someone in early recovery, the truth is they're sad. 
And there's no way around that. And there's no way around that chemically for like six months. Don't tell those people that. Don't, don't post this. <laughs> right? But for six months, right? That hedonic set point won't reset. And so you're in a brain state where you're constantly going from like sheer hope, like everything is going to work out here. I just came from that, that rehab. I just came from that, that, that uh, seminar that that person was doing. I just came from that group. I just got all this hope, so I'm good. You come from that, you eat dinner, and then an hour later, you're like, everything's falling apart. I'm going to lose it all. I don't know why I'm here. I should probably quit, and I should probably go home. That's the way that your brain operates in a treatment center. And I brought my journal to illustrate this. Again, props. Um, now, I wasn't unfounded in my rehab journey, so most people will get to a treatment center and they will go, a couple days, everything's working great, and then this is like a classic family trope and they'll tell the family this. They'll say, they're gonna call you and they're gonna come up with some crazy story. And that crazy story is always gonna end with this. So I think I should come home now, <laughs> right? And I did the same thing. Now, I called my wife and I said, you don't understand. Everyone hates it here. It's no good. And there's this weird flu going around and everybody is getting it, right? And I thought, for sure, this is gonna get me out of here. <laughs> this weird flu, this weird flu that everybody's getting and everyone's having these crazy fevers. I can't figure it out. Turns out, I checked into rehab January 1st, 2020. <laughs> Do you know what that weird flu was? <laughs> that weird flu was a pandemic getting ready to happen and my call was real and I should have gone home anyway. I stayed, I didn't get COVID, which is amazing. I have no idea how I did that, but this is how this worked in my journal. I journaled and it's on January 1st and this is all in one day. I timestamped it, here's in the morning. I begin and I say, 10 years ago, I packed all of my things and changed my life forever because these are the stupid things you write in your junior when you're in treatment, <laughs> right? And I'm starting off on this grand journey and I'm going and I'm going and I'm going like crazy and I get this huge inspirational speech going and it stems from years of being this new kid and I've got it all figured out. And so right here, it says, whatever comes next in highlighter, whatever comes next, I am ready for it. I want it, bring it on, I can do this, I can get sober, no problem at all. Let's fast forward two hours. January 1st, 5.46 p.m. My anxiety has gone through the roof. I finally got it to cool down, and then at dinner just now they served me raw turkey, which luckily I caught, but may have eaten, which could be enough to kill me. And then I sign, I date it, and I timestamp it, and it has a little arrow that says, if I die. <laughs> this is the kind of brain you're working with, with people who have been in bondage for so long, right? So it makes total sense that God would set up these rules, these sort of barriers, these, these, these regulations, right? Because the truth is when we're in that state, we need something where we can daily return to the goodness. For me, that was the big light switch with recovery. It's not that I'm just gonna get this one day and then I'm gonna walk away from this and I'm never gonna wanna drink again. No, the truth is I'm gonna wanna drink every day. But I now have a daily practice that returns me to my spiritual home a daily practice that returns me to my spiritual home. And in rehab, I thought I figured that out. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna patent this, I'm gonna make it a book, and I'm gonna make a ton of money off of this little, I figured it all, it's a daily spiritual practice. Turns out that wisdom has been around for a very long time. <laughs> um, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. But it's particularly in this Jewish idea of teshuva. And teshuva is a fun Hebrew word. Can everyone say teshuva for me? You are all Hebrew students, congratulations. Teshuva 
can mean repentance. So that's why I asked you that question to kind of prime the pump there. It can mean like, I'm sorry. It can mean like, oh, I got to go and fix this. But really, the deeper meaning here is that it's a turnaround. And it's not just a single turnaround. Teshuvah is not a one-time act. In fact, the old rabbis would talk about the fact that teshuva is a minute-by-minute, everyday exercise. That we're supposed to do teshuva every day because at, every, at any point we could lose our lives. And you're supposed to, by tradition, do teshuva the day before you pass away. So you do it every day. And what teshuva is, is it's this idea that everything can be repaired. It's this idea that nothing is beyond repair, and it's built into our very theology if we only kind of crack the book open a little bit further and take a look. <laughs> teshuva is with us from the very, very beginning, and it's this idea of turning around and making things all right. In fact, it's even said that the world could not be created, this is in Jewish tradition, until God created teshuva, the world could not stand. It's literally that important in that tradition. And for some reason, us as Christians decided to call it this weird word repentance, and it just turned into an I'm sorry, get forgiveness, right? Well, the reason this teshuva thing caught my eye, and I've been thinking about it so much, is my wife and I just moved um, from Woodland Hills, Woodland Hills uh, to Culver City, which was my version of the Exodus. So <laughs> we went from the valley to Culver City. And, uh, and I've been very happy there, uh, but we moved right across the street from this really cool Jewish temple, and it's called Bay Teshuva. Wow. Bay Teshuva, right? Uh, maybe, yeah, some of you probably have heard of it, right? It's a really famous uh, temple, and it happens to be a temple that has 100 beds for people who are in treatment, and then 200 regular congregants, and they all do church together. They all do church together. And guys, I gotta tell you, I've been trying to figure that out for a very long time. Corey can tell you that. We've had conversations about it. I've been wanting to start something like that for a very long time, and I couldn't find the model. I couldn't find anywhere in the world where something would like, like this would work, right? Where I could get addicts and non-addicts to come and worship together, where I could get all of these people in the same room so that we can all heal together because the addict's journey is really all of our journey. It's just louder. <laughs> That's what I wanted right? But I couldn't see the model. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it in terms of money. I couldn't see it in terms of sustaining my family because I know alcoholics and addicts, we don't have any money right now. <laughs> in this account, inf inflation, beer costs more, right? It's not going to happen, <laughs> right? But I saw this beautiful thing and I was like, oh my gosh, that can work. And that blew my mind. And then I found out that the rabbi who's in charge of it wrote a book and it's called Holy Thief. And it turns out he was this like really tough, like hustler guy who went to prison for like five years. And then when he got out, he found God and he started Bay Teshuva. And my mind was just blown. Like reading this book, I was like, oh my God, I've never seen something so close. It's my own story. He's like stealing cars and everything like that. And I was like, I was a pastor. I was kind of doing the same thing, but it's okay. Uh, I was like just putting these pieces together and, and I go to Chelsea, and this is the funniest part. I go to my wife, because again, I've discovered all this on my own, right? This is mine. Um, I go to Chelsea, and I say, oh, did you know? Like, I've read this book. I found this rabbi. He's right across the street. I can't believe that this place exists. Can you believe that I found this? And she goes, Josh, I gave you that rabbi's number a year ago. <laughs> a year ago. It turns out Chelsea's therapist had dated this rabbi like 30 years ago. And she was like, I think I know a guy who might be able to help Josh in his hopeless condition. And I was like, I don't need any help from some rabbi. Get him out of here. And then all, lo and behold, it's my idea. I'm doing this. Right? So I decide I'm going to go on the rabbi's website and I'm going to see if I can book a session with him just to hang with him. And I did it all under the guise of, hey, look, Rabbi Mark, I'm a really big fan. <laughs> right? I'm a really big fan. Just read your book. I would really love to meet you. Uh, and I did it under the guise of like, hey, I, I'm a Christian pastor. I could really use some help with this idea of teshuva. Could I pay you your hourly rate, because he's a spiritual director, uh, to just talk with me about teshuva? 
And then I sent this really flattering long email about how much it had like affected me and all that kind of stuff. And I thought like I'm really having to sell this guy. And he wrote back in five minutes and he said, "Sure, call me." <laughs> and so I called him, and uh, and I got on the phone with with Rabbi Mark, and it was one of the most incredible hours of my life. Um, and I got to ask him all sorts of things about teshuva. Uh, and here's the line by line. Here's the, the gold that I pulled from Rabbi Mark in terms of what teshuva is. And remember, he has worked with people who are lost in the worst throes of addiction, and this stuff has been able to pull them back. This combined with everything else, and he says that, he says it's an everything game. <laughs> He's like, if you find something in the Muslim tradition that works for you, please pull it in. If you find something in the Christian tradition that works for you to get sober, please pull it in, because the truth is we need all the help we can get to get out of this hole. And he said that in 30 years of being a rabbi, he's never once had a pastor call him and want to talk about teshuva. Not once. How crazy is that? And so I'm just riddling off all of these questions, and he's shocked that I even know these words. I'm like, you know, teshuva, all this kind of stuff, and riddling off the Hebrew. And I get all this gold from him. So here's what teshuva is from kind of like one of the sources of it. This is, teshuva is a, uh, a gesture of returning to God, of going home or going back to the ultimate source. The next one. Teshuva is filled with joy. This one is my favorite one ever. Charles did that this morning. Dead room, people have come in. I don't know what's going to happen. Charles gets on a piano and turns the love in the room around. That's teshuva with joy. Am I right? Right? Teshuva is filled with joy. It is the soul's fulfillment, and even perhaps it's, I don't know how to pronounce that word. Next slide. <laughs> Uh, teshuva is a prerequisite for the creation of the world. God could not make the world stand until God added the possibility of teshuva. Think about that for a second. In our creation narrative, we have these seven days. And in the Jewish tradition, we get these seven days only after teshuva is created. These seven days can't stand unless there's some animating force in the universe that can put things back together when they fall out of place. That can put things back together when they fall out of place. Please notice that I'm not saying so that we can avoid all this stuff. There has to be some force in the universe that will get me so that I don't have to ever face this, but that it could just be fixed. I think we have a couple more. Teshuva, uh, next slide there. Without Teshuva, the world could not endure. And then we have one more. I think there's one more. Teshuva is the easiest thing in the world. All that's necessary for the process of Teshuva is for the thought to occur to you. So what's so cool about this process of repentance and this process of teshuva, I'm going to give you the full, actual official rundown. This is how officially uh, teshuva is done in Jewish tradition. If you need forgiveness from someone, you would go and you would seek forgiveness. And this is really important in the addict's journey because there's so much that we need to be forgiven for, right? And so when we go, but we're seeking, there's no guarantee of forgiveness. And there's no guarantee of forgiveness in teshuva either. All we're doing is we're seeking forgiveness. And so what happens is I take, I go to the person that I need forgiveness from and I say, uh, look, I'm so sorry and I really repent and I want to make it right. And the difference is it's not just an apology. It's I want to make it right. I want to make it whole. How can I make this thing whole again? How much more effective would our apologies be if that was what we were doing? <laughs> we're just saying, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> but if we were saying like, I'm so sorry and I want to make it whole. I want to make it right. I don't want you to have to sit in this anymore. Teshuva is this animating force that makes all things whole. And so I took a real risk and I told Rabbi Mark, hey, I've got this theory. And he goes, okay, 
shoemaker. And he's very intimate. He's a very scary man. <laughs> he's like huge. He's been in prison. Um, I don't know. He's, he's retired, so he might go back. Who knows? I, I, I don't know what he's capable of on the phone. So I, I go out on a limb and I say, hey, Mark, I think in our tradition, uh, we call this teshuva thing Christ. And that it's this animating force that goes throughout the universe and it puts things back together. It brings things back to its original goodness. And then I think about Jesus and all of the interactions that he had in the gospel and all I can think is teshuva because there's no just solving this problem. There's no just, I'm going to solve your affliction. If you're blind, I'm going to make you have sight. If you, can, if you can't walk, I'm going to make you walk. No, the biggest thing that Jesus does and the biggest gift that he gives us all is he asks us right to her face, what is it that you want me to do for you? What is it that you want me to do for you? Do you really want this affliction? Is that it? Or is there something else? Because you're not one note. You're a piano with 88 keys and infinite possibilities. And you're not just the affliction that's happening right here. And so Jesus, in everything he's doing, he's always pulling people back to the center. Zacchaeus is a perfect example of this. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, it's a little man who climbs a tree, right? In a tunic. I don't want to talk about that, but he climbs it up in a tunic. You can see The only time Jesus mentions salvation out loud is when he talks to Zacchaeus and says, that's what salvation looks like. When Zacchaeus comes to his senses and he realizes he's a tax collector and I've wronged all these people and I need to make it right, and how I'm going to make it right is if I've stolen from them, I'm going to give it back twice fold. Jesus announces, whoa, that's what salvation looks like. It's making things whole. It's not a password. (laughs) It's making things whole. That's what salvation looks like. Jesus did not speak. He spoke Hebrew, and he likely spoke Greek. But the language of the day and the language that they most likely would have been talking around would have been Aramaic. And in Aramaic, and this is going to be a shocker for some of the new evangelicals in the room, in Aramaic, there is no word for salvation. Just let that hang for a second. (laughs) It's like the key thing, right, in Jesus' thing. There's no word. So when they're talking with each other about what this reality of the kingdom is, and he's talking with his disciples about what this is, he's using words like come awake, come alive, wake up. These are the words that are used for salvation. So when he looks at Zacchaeus and he says, oh my gosh, this is salvation, what he's saying is, look at this, this man has woken up. (laughs) He's done teshuva. He's standing in the same place. He's in the same tunic that he climbed that tree up, but he's not the same. Because he has done teshuva, he's not the same. And so when I was talking to Rabbi Mark about all this stuff, I thought I was going to get off scot-free. I was just going to have a great conversation about teshuva, get my sermon stuff, and peace out. But Rabbi Mark is a spiritual director and would not let me get off that easily. And so each time I try and ask a question about teshuva, he'd try and ask a question about me. <laughs> like, well, so Josh, tell me about your story. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, I came from here, did this, blah, blah, blah. But uh, teshuva, like back to that idea of like coming back and then I would write the thing down. And then finally, by the, like, the, I had, we had 15 minutes left. I paid for those 15 minutes. And he's just standing there and he's like, all right, so we talk about you now? And I went, okay, yeah, sure, I got nothing to hide. And then within two seconds, he had me in tears. <laughs> and the reason was is because he, he asked me, Josh, why did you call me about this? And I was like, oh, well, because you're, you're Rabbi Mark. You wrote this book. I, I like, know who you are. You live my town. He's like, no, no, no. You could have, I mean, there's hundreds of rabbis around. Like, why did you call me? And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> uh, I'm actually an alcoholic. And, uh, and I went through this journey of recovery. And your whole story helped me 
uh, in terms of like actually visualizing what I really want to do with my life, which is to start a community where addicts and non-addicts can be together. And when I said that, he said, where did you get that idea from? And I said, I really don't know. <laughs> it's been so long in my head. And he's like, would you maybe say that God gave you that idea? And I was like, probably. And he's like, okay, kid. He said, well, if God called you to something and you're not answering the call, and this is his words, not mine, so I'm really sorry about this. Sorry, mother-in-law. Sorry, Lorini. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? If you're not answering that call, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because the truth is when we ignore a call, it's not just like everything is going to hunky-dory work out, right? We are responsible. We have work. What he said to me, and I'll never forget, is he's like, Josh, Christ is true, and you, what you're saying is true. Of course what you're saying is true, that that's teshuva in the world. The problem is, and what I've never understood about you Christians, is your, uh, your ability to think that somehow you get out of the work. That you get out of the work. It's a daily practice of coming back to center. Nobody said one altar call, you're going to live this awesome, beautiful life for the rest of your life. No, we are a forgetful people. I love this saying. I've got a very fun older friend uh, in the recovery program that I'm in that always says, I go to bed with a leaky head, meaning like when he puts his head on the pillow, all that he learned that day goes out and into the bed. And that's what we are. We have leaky heads. I can learn something. I can go to bed, and then the next morning, I can be stressed out, right? So it's a cycle, and it's always supposed to be a cycle. It's all supposed to complete. It's supposed to be this full circle moment. And so in these moments where I pull a gas canister out of a, a thing, I can laugh and I can smile about it and I can say, Teshuva, I get to go back to the gas station, turn around and fix this problem. Also ask them if I can keep it because I'm paying for it. And they said, no. <laughs> so I bought another one for way too much money. Anyway, <laughs> it's these moments of coming back and facing it. A couple of weeks ago, Chelsea and I went in for the exact same scan that we went in when we found that our little baby angel was not gonna make it. And I'm not kidding guys, we drove the same car, I parked in the same spot, <laughs> I got in the same elevator, we walked to the same hallway, we saw the same nurse, we sat in the same chairs, I looked out the window and I saw the same view that I saw when my mind went numb and I realized I was gonna lose everything I was looking forward to and also just kind of realizing I'm losing myself anyway. I sat in that same chair and that same doctor came through after the ultrasound had been done and that same doctor who gave us horrible, horrible news looked me in the face and said, I'm so glad you two are here. You're an example of how something terrible can happen to good people, and it's completely on accident, and I want the theology of that doctor. <laughs> that terrible things can happen to good people, and it might just be completely on accident. But there might be a force in the world that pulls it back and makes it mean something. There might be a force in the world that pulls it back and makes it beautiful. There might be something in the world that makes it whole. And that thing is teshuva. And that thing is redemption, and that thing is Christ, and that thing is Jesus if we only grab a hold of it. And I think in rooms like this, we can get all sorts of deconstruction going on and reconstruction. You want the perfect way to reconstruct? Teshuva. Turn it around. Turn it around. 
we all sang How He Loves this morning. How many of you sang that in a different environment at least one time in your life? Right? And now you're here, and that same song is playing, and the same words, well, maybe not Sloppy Wet Kiss if you were from one of those churches, <laughs> but those same words are going, and it's completely new. When we were singing that, I lost it back there. And that makes no sense, because I did a lot of deconstruction and threw that song right on out, <laughs> right? And yet, I lost it. That's teshuva. That's bringing the whole thing back around. It's these full circle moments where you can realize that God was in this place and I, I did not know. So with that, you're going to get back in your groups and you're going to answer this quick question, which is, how can you use teshuva in your life? Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.